0: As we come now to God's word, would you turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read along with me to the book of the Psalms? We'll be reading from the 3rd Psalm. That's the Psalms in chapter 3. And as always before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Almighty, would you help us to really hear your word now? And not only that, Lord, would you help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only? Help us in this time to see you even through the clouds of sin. Lord, would you help us bring light to our minds and hearts by your spirit? And guide us, we pray, and help us to believe We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Psalms in chapter 3. I'll read the whole psalm. It's not too many verses here. Psalms chapter 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is God's Word. Now, we know last week, if you were here with us, we finally finished many long months. Uh, We finished up the book of Philippians in the New Testament. We're now beginning a journey back into the Old Testament, and so we'll spend a couple of months in a section of 2 Samuel. But this morning... Uh, We're we're reading from Psalm 3 as a sort of bridge to get us there. This Psalm is about or is from David, written by him. He identifies himself here. David, the king of Israel, uh, the leader of the people of God. And he says in the very first verse that he's being threatened by foes. Not a big fan of that translated word. Who says foes anymore? Uh, But I know what he means. There's threat from my enemies. There's a squeeze happening here, and as he goes through the psalm, he tells us a little more about that. These enemies are rising against me. There are many thousands of them, and they are, he says, all around. We actually know more about the situation he's talking about here than he tells us in this psalm. Because this particular song is linked to a particular historical event in David's life So a little background on the Psalms here to get us there The Psalms, uh, some of them have titles Which are given by the author So some don't, if you look, if you've got your Bibles open in the first and second Psalms Some of them, if you have certain Bibles, may have a title in there but those titles are added in by the translators to sort of give you a summary of certain sections of the Bible. But there's no title given by the author. There's, it just begins. In Psalm 1: Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Or in verse, or in chapter 2, Why do the nations rage? But if you look over on the opposite side of Psalm 3 into Psalm 4, there's a title here. Mine says. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So apparently this one you bust out the guitars for, I suppose. And in the next psalm, I think that five, yes, uh, is one to the choir master for the flutes. So all the flute players would gather. So some of these then have, have titles here, and they're generic titles. They're to tell us how to sing that particular psalm. Some of the Psalms have more than just these generic titles. If you look at Psalm thirty-four, for example, the title of this one is of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. We actually know when that was. That comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 21, when David's very strange scene just starts drooling and scratching at the door and pretends to be insane. It's a bizarre circumstance. We won't talk about that now, but he writes a psalm about that. And then in Psalm 51, he titles it that this is in relation to a very bad set of decisions that he made around Bathsheba and his repentance and brokenness that comes out of that. So these psalms are connected to particular moments in David's life. Of the 150 psalms, there are 14 That are like this, that are connected to a specific time And this one is one of those You can see in the title to Psalm 3 I'll read it again A Psalm of David When he fled from Absalom his son We're going to look at what happened there In the coming weeks That's where we're headed in 2 Samuel We're going to look at the life of David Particularly in relation to his son Absalom but this morning, we're looking at the psalm. So as we look at this poem, really, this poem that's meant to be sung that David wrote about this time in his life, as we read something like this, there can be a temptation to just sort of read it from a distance. Since, Paul's talk, or since David's talking about a particular time in his life, I might think, well, that's just about him. Or parts of this don't seem to apply to me in some ways. I mean, I don't know about you, but parts of his situation I just can't relate to. I don't know what it's like to have thousands of foes around me. I don't even know that there's a thousand people that know I exist, much less are my foes. So it can be hard to relate to some of this. And so as a result, sometimes it's easy to just move by a psalm like this, or... Sometimes, because it's hard to relate, we force this round peg into a square hole and try to make it fit our circumstances. And that's just not the point of the psalms. That's not the direction they go in. The psalms, we know, were originally poems meant to be sung by the whole people of God. So this isn't just a solo David wouldn't Solos are fine, but David wouldn't get the mic and come up and sing it by himself. Nor was it just for a choir to sing by themselves for us all to just listen to. The choir or the leader of the music would lead the entire congregation in singing it. And we would sing these things together, even the my's and the me's. We would all sing, oh Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. So, from this, we know that even though this is about a particular time in David's life, a particular instance, it has a broader purpose for all of God's people. Too often, we come to the Bible looking for something that we can identify with. Too often we come to the Bible as if it were a prescription medication to my particular ailment. Am I lonely? Well, then I'll go looking in here for some comfort. Am I scared? And maybe I'll try to find a passage that can make me courageous. Have I lost a loved one? And I might go looking to fill the gap in my heart. And am I angry or frustrated? I might go to the Bible looking for peace. And we know that the Bible does address and speak into all of those situations. This is the word of the living God, so the word is living and active and powerful. But if we come to it constantly looking for a fix to our particular situation, the danger there. it teaches us over time that we are the center of the solar system, and we're not. The Bible is not mainly about you. It's not mainly about me. The Bible is a book about God. Now, it's not that God ignores us or doesn't care about that, doesn't care about us. I mean, (laughs) all we have to do to know how deeply, profoundly he loves us is to look at the life of Jesus. I mean, God became man, walked the dust of the earth and had deep, profound, moving compassion for people. He walked with them. He ate meals with them. He chatted with them. He taught them true things about God, and in the end, the culmination of his life on earth, he died as a perfect, pure sacrifice for sin to save sinners who are dead like us. He loves us deeply, and yet this same Jesus does not say, let me follow you. He says, you come follow me. I am the one who will set your direction. We see in the Psalter, the Psalms here, the full range of life experiences. We see joy and we see heartache. We see desperation and fear. We see hope We see anger and confusion. We see trust and faith. We see failure and we see success and yet all of these things are converging like river tributaries that are all pouring into the mighty Mississippi that's flowing in one direction now. What direction is all of this flowing toward? We call this book the Psalms, that's the name of it in English, which means the songs, even though we don't sing them very often, it's okay, it's fine to read them as well, but if we were the first readers of this book, the Jewish listeners of this, in Hebrew, they call this book the Tehillim, which means the praises. We're reading out of the praises, and they're all heading in that direction. That's the reason, by the way, when we have our call to worship at the beginning of our worship services, we often pull from the psalms. They're drawing us to praise God. So whether you can identify with David's situation or not, when we sing this or read this or dwell on this psalm or really any psalm, what we're doing here is climbing into a canoe that is meant to lead us down a river of praise to God. David here is calling to us, telling us, get in this boat. Come join me in worship. Because we're called to do this, to praise God together. C.S. Lewis gets after this idea of shared experience in praising God. This book, this looks much bigger than the book actually is. In his book, The Reflection of the Psalms, this multiple books mushed together in one bound book, but in his book, The Reflection on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wrote this. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. Or to come suddenly at the end of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. Or to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. What Lewis is telling us here is that these psalmists are not, they're calling us to praise God. But they're not just saying, listen, praise God. They're saying, here is your God. This is what your God is like, and from that will spring praise. So instead of just talking about praise itself here and the rest of our time, let's behold our God. Let's look at what's true of him as he brings us to praise him. And there's lots we could draw out of just this one psalm in just a few verses, but I want to draw out in the rest of our time four things, four river streams that are true about God in this psalm that help flow toward praise of God. So if you're a note-taker, they're nice, tidy four things. You can write it down or not. Doesn't matter. But here they are. The first thing that's true of the Lord from this psalm is the Lord is the lifter of heads. You can see it in verse 3. That's the last thing he said. You are the lifter of my head. When I think about hanging heads... It instantly, in my head, the image comes up of the Charlie Brown Christmas. You know, and it plays that kind of sad song, and he hangs the little ornament on top of the tree, and it bends over, and Charlie Brown says, ah, rats, everything I touch gets ruined. And then he just slumps over and walks off, and that sad music is playing. That's what I think about our heads being bowed, And there are lots of things that could bring us to hang our heads. Disgrace. Disappointment. Disease. Discouragement. It is stunning in those moments to think that the Lord Almighty, the creator of all things in those moments, would touch the chin and lift the head just because that's who he is. The Lord is the lifter of our heads, and the way David speaks about that, he bundles that thing, you'll notice in verse 3, with several other things. He says, you're a shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. And the scripture often uses images like that, especially a shield. We see similar descriptions of the Lord in the Psalms. They, they call him a fortress and a defender and a strong tower. And we should love those things. They're true and good for us. But when we say those things, that the Lord's a shield and a tower, it's not as if the Lord puts us in a playpen and says, here's where you sit, and, and, and I'm going to go over here and fight for you and take care of everything so you're good on your own. No, no, no. He also lifts the head in those moments so that we will be engaged to be able to press against what we need to press against. He lifts our head to be watchful against sin, to war against sin in our own hearts and the wickedness in the world, with the Lord himself as our shield, so we don't grow weary, so we don't lose heart, Because the Lord is the lifter of heads. There's the first one. The second thing we could draw from this psalm that's true of the Lord. The Lord is the sustainer in sleep. He's the sustainer in sleep. We all need sleep. In fact, some of us might need sleep right now. In fact, some of us might even Be sleeping right now, I can see you all, you know that, right? We need sleep, and sleep keeps us from thinking that we're in control I mean, no matter how hard you try If you wait long enough, sleep will eventually take over you Uh, John Piper, a living theologian actually get to cite from someone who's living here for a moment. A living theologian uh, wrote a brief uh, article called A Brief Theology of Sleep in which he kind of talks about sleep according to the scriptures and he just kind of makes some basic observations. He says we live roughly a third of our lives unconscious. Isn't that strange to think about? And he says God could have designed us differently. I mean imagine how different life would look if you didn't need sleep if you had an extra eight hours in every day. I mean, that's like a second career right there. You could have a whole second job. Make more money. You could have more time with your family. You could travel more. You could actually get your to-do list items done. You could join missions. You could pray more. You could serve more. You could read your Bible more. And yet God designed us for sleep. He designed us to surrender. To have to give ourselves over to sleep every day. And the reason John Piper says for this, uh, the reason at least he says, is that sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. It brings us to him. That's why the author of the 121st Psalm says this. In the first verses of Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He won't let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You need sleep, but he doesn't. He will still be in control when you wake up. And even at our most vulnerable, even when we're lying down with eyes closed in the middle of the night, even if foes are all around, the Lord is the sustainer in sleep. Third, The Lord is, here's the third truth about the Lord from this psalm. The Lord is the breaker of teeth. The Lord is a breaker of teeth. Now, that is a startling image, especially after the ones before were such tender, kind ones. We know that the Lord is both love and thunder. And you may hear from some who only emphasize his love. And you'll hear every day about how the Lord lifts your head. And you may hear from others that the Lord is only thunder. And he's only the one that breaks teeth. But if we're to know the Lord as he truly is, according to his word, he is both. And it's good for us to know this. Part of the reason why this image of breaking teeth is startling to some, because we imagine it in a human context. If a human did this, so if if a parent smacks a child on the cheek so hard that teeth are broken, that's abuse. That is wrong. That is not what the Lord is doing here. Uh, The psalmist here, when he's talking about the Lord, is closer to what Job is talking about when he talks about his own life in Job chapter 29. So listen for the discussion of teeth here at the end of this. I'll start in verse... Well, I'll pick up in verse 13. Job 29, verse 13. The blessing of him who is about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, and made him drop his prey from his teeth. In other words, what Job is saying here is because he loves justice, because he loves righteousness, especially in relation to the poor and the needy, Job says he'll, he breaks the fangs or the teeth of the unrighteousness so that they'll drop their prey out of their jaws. It's actually to rescue the weak one. So, can you imagine the movie Jaws with a shark that had its teeth removed? How different a movie that would be. You hear the bottom, bottom, and here comes the shark. You see the fin. And then it gets up over the edge of the boat and it comes and just kind of gums on the edge of the ship. What a different movie that would be there if the bite were taken out. That's what the Lord is doing here. He says he rescues the poor and the needy and the weak, and because he is like that to the oppressor, he is a breaker of teeth. Finally, our fourth and last one here in this psalm, the Lord is the owner of salvation. He says that in, in the last verse, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, that's a different way to think about it than we often do. Often we say the Lord is the giver of salvation, and that would be appropriate to say. But we know the biggest threat uh, for David is is not just that the foes are surrounding him in thousands. He says at the very beginning in the first verse, O oh Lord, how many of my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul that there is no salvation in God. Their biggest threat is that you will not be saved by God, they say. They say either God is not able to save you, or God is not willing to save you, Or God does not consider you worth saving. And the response of David here is not to brag and say, ah, I have salvation. His response is to say, well, (laughs) if he says salvation is mine, then he's kind of putting it in his own control. I know I cannot be trusted to keep track of my car keys. How much less should I want to be The one to keep my own salvation. David's response at the end is that salvation is the Lord's, it belongs to him. And so I'll trust him to do what is right and to save. What is true of David here on the earth is also true of all believers who have died. We know that as we see a peek into heaven in Revelation chapter 7. Hear how they talk about salvation here. Revelation 7, starting at verse 9, John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In other words, everything is God's. It belongs to him, including salvation itself. We trust him with that. We praise him with that. All of the rivers of Scripture are taking their little boats into the very throne room of God, where there is praise erupting in geysers, fountains and waterfalls pouring worship upon God. We need We need to hold this in our minds. We need to keep this in our eyes. We need to keep the Lord in the center of our minds. Now, and especially in the coming weeks. Because as we're getting ready to look at the life of David, this is a hard season for him. And things are about to get very messy When David says, my foes, my enemies rise against me, you'll remember from the title, this is when he fled from Absalom, his son. His own son has become his enemy. How did he get here? And where does he go from here? As we'll look in the coming weeks of the unfolding of their lives, We know that what is true about God will not change. Our God is still the lifter of heads. Our God is still the sustainer in sleep. Our God is still the breaker of teeth. And our God is still the owner of salvation. And so with David, we will praise him. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, thank you for showing us what is true about you. Help us to embrace this, to embrace all of this, and as we do, to fix our eyes and hearts on you. Lord, as we do this, would you stir in us a deep and profound praise for you. You are our God and we trust you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.